Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. Animals in World War I From transportation to communication to security, comfort, and morale, animals have been indispensable human partners throughout history. It is therefore not surprising that animals have played important roles in military conflicts. During World War I, millions of animals were put into service on each side. This war is often remembered for great human suffering, but millions of animals also experienced the horrors of this war while bringing their own unique skill sets to the battlefield. So great was the cost in animals during World War I that a number of animal aid and benefit societies were set up throughout the world to help care for the millions of horses, mules, pigeons, dogs, and other animals in service during the war. In the years after the war, monuments around the world were also set up to recognize the contributions of these animals. Interest in them has continued to the present day. In recent years, some animals have been recognized posthumously, such as a horse named Warrior, who was awarded the Dickin Medal by the People's Dispensary for Sick Animals in September 2014 to recognize the gallantry and work of all the animals that served in the Great War. The Dickin Medal is commonly referred to as the Victoria Cross or the Medal of Honor for Animals, although this is often a controversial comparison. What is not controversial, however, is that scholarship on animals and their contributions during World War I is an ever-growing field of study, and that theater, film, and television are also increasingly highlighting the role of these animals. This podcast will briefly cover the contributions of some of the more common animals associated with World War I. Despite the fact that World War I was a modern mechanized war, horses remained a very visible presence throughout the war. Today, historians estimate that the Allied and Central Powers used about 6 million horses. At the start of the war, traditional cavalry units served as scouts and clashed with enemy units. Although these units continued to operate in places like the Middle East for most of the war, as the war quickly reached stalemate in Europe in 1914, most commanders began to see a cavalry charge in the face of machine guns as something completely futile. While their role on the European battlefields waned, however, horses still retained some of their traditional wartime roles. Horses transported millions of dead and wounded from the battlefields. The image of the automobile serving as an ambulance during the war is often the prevailing image of the ambulance. But in fact, while there were automobiles used for this purpose, there were far more horse-drawn ambulances in the early years of the war. Horses also supplied critical services when it came to transporting supplies. While ships, trains, and trucks transported many of the hundreds of millions of shells and other equipment used in the war, horses and mules also were used as beasts of burden to haul these materials to the front where they were needed. Given the often difficult terrain of the front, these animals provided a vital link in the transportation networks of both the Allied and Central Powers. Usually a team of 6 to 12 horses was needed to move artillery pieces. Horses also carried the supplies that men and animals needed at the front. 
By November 1918, the British Army was using about half a million horses each month to distribute 34,000 tons of meat and 45,000 tons of bread to troops at the front. Faced with deep mud and craters near the front, most automobiles became hopelessly mired in the muck. Often, only horses and mules could successfully haul the supplies to the men in these conditions. At the beginning of the war, Great Britain had about 25,000 horses for war. Germany had a great deal more, as they had engaged in an extensive breeding program in order to be prepared for future war. Although America was technically neutral, during the first years of the war, more than a million horses would be shipped from the United States to the Allies through ports on the East Coast. Canada and Argentina also served as a source of horses for the Allies. As a result, the Allies were able to replenish their supply of horses throughout the war. The Central Powers did not have this luxury. Surrounded on land and blockaded at sea, Germany watched its number of horses dwindle throughout the war with little hope of resupply. Austria-Hungary was also faced with a similar problem. As horse losses mounted, severely overstretched supply lines were further strained, adding to the gradually declining fortunes of the Central Powers. Horses also created major health and sanitation issues. Manure was a constant source of disease, as were the rotting bodies of horses killed in the war. Often the bodies of these animals could not be removed from where they fell, which left them rotting in the mud, usually in close proximity to the soldiers or to their supplies. The suffering of these animals was great, but there was universal acknowledgement that they were essential parts of the war effort. This was also a time in history when humane societies were growing in influence. As a result, propaganda posters in World War I encouraged people to view the horse as more than just a piece of equipment, but rather as a soldier too, or as a living thing that was loyally suffering for its country and that was sympathetic to the soldiers that it served. Organizations like the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals and the American Humane Association started campaigns during the war to create what was essentially a Red Cross for animals. Because so many horses were used in the war, horses tended to be the focus of their public awareness campaigns. In example, the Red Star Animal Relief Society, an outgrowth of the American Humane Society, created a poster depicting a soldier comforting his wounded horse. The text on the poster reads, Help the horse to save the soldier. Through efforts of organizations like this, a veterinary corps and an ambulance service was established for the animals of war. Tens of thousands of animal first aid booklets were also distributed to soldiers. In addition to horses and mules, depending on their breed, dogs were also used to help transport supplies or lug artillery. More often, however, dogs belonged to a diverse group of animals adopted by military units as mascots. This diverse group included goats, cats, birds, small rodents, and in the case of a Canadian battalion, a black bear brought from North America. This bear was eventually given to the London Zoo, where the creature inspired the fictional character of Winnie the Pooh. Aboard ship or in the trenches, the ability of cats to catch and kill rodents also made them vital wartime partners and mascots. Whatever the animal, however, 
There are many oral histories of the period that indicate that soldiers and sailors worried daily about the safety of their adopted mascots in the field. Sometimes, however, the status of mascot was just temporary. When the HMS Glasgow sank the German cruiser SMS Dresden, a British petty officer aboard the Glasgow saw a pig swimming towards the ship. He entered the water to rescue the pig, only to be nearly drowned by the panicked animal. Originally intended as food aboard the Dresden, aboard the Glasgow, the young pig was adopted by the crew and named Turpitz after the German admiral. Turpitz the pig eventually ended up in the Whale Island Gunnery School in England, and later, after having put on substantial weight, he met his original intended fate when he was auctioned off as pork for a Red Cross charity benefit for around two thousand pounds. Dogs, however, were probably the most common mascots on all sides during the war. In this capacity, they often served as a source of comradeship or as an unofficial morale officer. For many in the field, dogs reminded them of their life before the war and provided them with an escape from the horrors of the war. But they were working animals too. By the end of the war, Germany had employed thirty thousand dogs. Britain, France, and Belgium had a combined total of more than twenty thousand, and Italy had used around three thousand dogs. The United States used a few hundred dogs, far fewer than other combatants, but ended the war with one of the more famous four-legged veterans, Sergeant Stubby. Sergeant Stubby was a Boston Terrier mix found wandering the training ground of the 102nd Infantry in July 1917. The soldiers of the 102nd developed a fondness for the dog and smuggled him to France. There, Sergeant Stubby spent 18 months in the trenches, where he was hit several times by shrapnel and injured once in a mustard gas attack. He was fitted with a special gas mask on his return, and was later credited with giving soldiers early warning about artillery barrages and mustard gas attacks. He even captured a German soldier by hanging onto the seat of his pants until American soldiers could help take the man into custody. On his return to America, Sergeant Stubby was a celebrity, visited by everybody from President Woodrow Wilson to General John J. Pershing. Sergeant Stubby offered the soldiers an escape and something to rally around, but clearly he was also a useful tool in the trenches, as were many other dogs who were generally eager to please their handlers and naturally gifted with agility and excellent senses. Dogs were commonly used as sentries, trained to bark if they detected a new or unusual presence, and as scouts, where they were trained to quietly point or raise their hackles if they detected the enemy. Other dogs were trained to find and carry first aid supplies to the wounded. On occasion, they would also locate and wait with a mortally wounded soldier as he died. Other faster or smaller breeds were employed carrying messages between units. In this role, their speed and agility made them difficult targets for enemy snipers. Terrain generally presented no problem to them, and there are records of dogs successfully making journeys across miles of battlefield to deliver messages. It is sometimes claimed that communications dogs were of little use among British soldiers because they were petted too much and given too many rations from the men in the trenches. But overall, dogs likely had a much greater success rate and survival rate than many human couriers. Homing pigeons also served as couriers throughout the war. 
Even though radio and telephones were emerging on the battlefield, these pigeons were key to battlefield communication. In the field, communication lines could be cut, or there could be a number of other problems with the transmission of a message, and so pigeons flying at a rate of 25 miles an hour or faster were often the most reliable method of communication. Pigeons were also fairly difficult for snipers to hit, prompting many to believe that the best way to eliminate enemy homing pigeons was to use their natural predator, larger birds of prey such as hawks. On both sides of the conflict, there is evidence that hawks were used to attack the enemy's pigeons. Pigeons would be carried by troops at the front in wooden baskets. If a message needed to be relayed to headquarters, it would simply be written down on a slip of paper, rolled up and inserted into a tiny canister tied to one of the pigeon's legs. The bird would then be released and, using its homing instincts, would fly back to its loft. Often the arrival of a bird would trigger a small bell, which would alert the pigeon's keepers that a new message was waiting. The message would then be run over to the appropriate recipient. The success rate of these birds was phenomenally high, and their ability to successfully deliver their message no matter where they were released was something human couriers, in the intense confusion of battle, often could not do. As a result, mobile pigeon units served as communication hubs on all sides of the conflict. During the Battle of the Marne, the French had 72 mobile pigeon lofts at their disposal. These units followed behind the troops or retreated as required. This flexibility made the birds so much more reliable than man-made communication devices that were highly susceptible to sabotage, weather, or that required substantial labor to lay or repair wires. Overall, each side employed hundreds of thousands of pigeons throughout the war. The birds were so important that breeding programs were organized to ensure the best possible couriers and in the United Kingdom, the Defense of the Realm Act prohibited the killing of or mistreating pigeons. A pigeon named Cherami even became one of the big heroes of the war. There is considerable debate today over whether Cherami was male or female. Today the bird is on display at the National Museum of American History in Washington, D.C. The Smithsonian describes the bird as male, so we will use masculine pronouns in this podcast to identify the bird. Serving as one of the 600 pigeons with the U.S. Army Signal Corps in France near Verdun, Cherami is credited with successfully delivering 12 messages. On his last mission, October 4, 1918, as he tried to fly back to his loft, German soldiers saw him and opened fire. He survived the initial hail of bullets, but was eventually hit. Grounded momentarily, he once again took flight and managed to evade his attackers. Twenty-five minutes and twenty-five miles later, and covered in blood, he arrived back at division headquarters. He had been shot through the breast, blinded in one eye, and his right leg was dangling by a tendon. Despite these serious injuries, Cherami delivered a message that saved the lives of almost 200 men from the Lost Battalion of the U.S. Army's 77th Division. These men were being shelled by their own troops, and Cherami's message instructed the U.S. Army to redirect its artillery fire. In acknowledgment of Cherami's role in saving such a high number of American soldiers, the French government awarded him the Croix de Guerre with Palm. 
a celebrity at this point, the pigeon was sent back to the United States. General Pershing personally saw him off as he left France bound for America. He was patiently nursed by his caretakers, but eventually died from his wounds on June 13, 1919, in New Jersey. He was then prepared by a taxidermist for future display. Most other pigeons are known to us today only by a number. At Passchendaele in October 1917, Pigeon 2709 was sent back to headquarters with a message. It was supposed to be a 20-minute trip, but 2709 came under fire and a bullet broke its leg and then passed through its body. 21 hours later, after demonstrating incredible perseverance, 2709 finally delivered the message. The next day, 2709 died of its wounds. Pigeons were also used by sailors and aviators. Besides being used for occasional communication, in the event of a crash or sinking, pigeons could be deployed to send word back to home base. Despite all of the emerging technology in World War I, these birds remained a reliable source of communication, a role that would continue into World War II. The service of animals in World War I could fill volumes. A quote from General John J. Pershing about the service of horses and mules in the American Expeditionary Forces provides a fitting tribute to all of the animals that participated in the war. They were found in all the theaters of preparation and operation, doing their silent but faithful work without the faculty of hoping for any reward or compensation. Another tribute from the Memorial to Animals in War that was opened in Hyde Park, London in 2004 reads, They had no choice. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.